Well, it's great to see you. If you're a guest, I'm David. I'm the pastor. We're glad you're here celebrating. It's a great weekend. We've got a lot of people traveling. That's great. We appreciate them being out, enjoying their freedom a little bit. I didn't realize we were going to give away all those Reese's. I saw them uh, stored away the other day. I didn't know what they were for. I took a few, but I didn't know what they were for. I guess it's our way of saying we love you, and we don't care if you have a peanut allergy or not. We're going to give you a Reese's peanut butter cup. And whatever's left, of course, comes back to me. So that's a good thing about that. Uh, in college, I uh, majored in history and political science. And the focus of that major was in American history. And, and obviously, uh, a large part of that was the American uh, Revolutionary War. So I love, I love this time. Uh, and we celebrate, we celebrate this weekend when 56 men committed treason. That's what we celebrate. We celebrate a little bit of rebellion. And it's a reminder, this is important, except for God and your parents, particularly your mama, a little rebellion's okay. It is. I've lived by that principle a lot of my life. I've probably done more rebelling than the average. And let me just say, sometimes it feels good. And it's and okay. And, 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 and the thing about it, you know, the, the, the the thing about their rebellion and why it's so important is just remember this. If they hadn't rebelled, we might still be speaking English to this day. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> that whole part was just for that joke. <laughs> Some of you don't get it, but you'll get it at lunch and you'll feel like a fool when you laugh in the middle of eating your enchiladas. So. Um, July is a critical month for us. It really is. Uh, we have so much going on. Our youth leave in, a, in just a couple hours to go to youth camp, pray for them. Next week, our children go to children's camp. And towards the back half of this month, we have three different opportunities to be involved with our, some of our church planters and some of the projects we have uh, in, really across the Southwest. In a couple of weeks, there's an overnight trip to Tucson. We need some people to go to that trip. There's some important stuff going on there. And then we're going to have several day trips uh, to Juarez and to Chaparral, working with some of our Spanish-speaking church plants. So after the service, you can go out. I think there'll be a table out there, and you can uh, kind of connect with that a little bit. We're in a series entitled The Kingmaker. Um, this is a series about Samuel, started at the beginning of the summer, going to go through the end of, of July. Um, and one of the things that I've tried to stress on this, in this whole series, is when you get through this series, is to understand that everybody needs somebody to save them. And when, when you look at the life of Samuel, when all is said and done, and what the series is designed to do is help us realize everybody needs somebody to save them. Samuel is one of these just mega important transitional figures in the life of Israel. There were three main people in the life of Israel, Moses, Abraham, Moses, and David. Then there were three guys, as I understand, as I look at it, there were three guys who helped transition them. Joshua transitioned them from the wilderness into the promised land. Joshua, not Moses, Joshua got into the promised land. Elijah transitioned the people from a time when the kings failed to do their part in honoring God, they, Elijah transitioned from away from the kings to a focus on the word of the prophets. And between those guys, there was Samuel. And he transitioned the people from a time when they were 12 tribes in chaos, worshiping Baal, rebelling against God, being defeated by the tribes around them. <clears throat> he brought them together, he unified them to the worship of God and only God, which lasted for over 100 years. And he was the man that anointed a guy to be king, whose name was David, 
who would be the single most important figure in the history of Israel from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus Christ. He is that important of a guy. And today we come to a message that is about the transition. And this, I'll be honest with you, is one of the hardest passages in Scripture for me to talk about. It is tough, and you'll see it in a minute. Here's what I want you to see from the message today. In life, it is easy to choose what we think is best over trusting God. In your life, it is a lot easier to choose to do what you think is best instead of trusting God. So we begin this way. Sometimes, some things don't make sense. And when you come to the Old Testament, I'll be honest, a lot of times it doesn't make sense. Because here's, here's what we know. And what I've been sharing with you, this whole series about Kingmaker, is that anointing David to be king is really the most important thing probably that, that Samuel could have done. We, we saw in the very first message that during the time of the judges, I mean, people of Israel were a total mess. It was an unqualified disaster. They worshiped false gods. They had completely abandoned the Lord. They were almost every tribe was in servitude to somebody during that time. I mean, what it says in Judges is this. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And then Judges says in several times, because they had no king. So if you read the book of Judges, what's the message you're going to get? They needed a king. Makes sense. In fact, in Deuteronomy, Back when Moses was around, when he wrote Deuteronomy, he said in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 through 20, God speaking through Moses says what it means to have a king. He's going to say, you're going to have a king one day. This is what a good king needs to do, basically. I mean, then you, you come to David, and David's this unbelievable figure. I mean, there is no one from the history of Moses to Jesus, more important than David. In fact, he's the greatest king they ever have. They rise to their highest heights in terms of worship, in terms of power. I know with Solomon, economically, they'll be more powerful, but there's a lot of corruption and decay going with Solomon. I mean, David was it. And every king was measured against David. Every king. 2 Kings 18.3 says of Hezekiah, he did right in the eyes of the Lord because he walked in the ways of his father David. Either you walked the way David did or you didn't. That's how God judged you. And the great thing about David and why he is so important is because David was just a temporary king. But as I say repeatedly when we look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament promises something. And the New Testament delivers. And what the New Testament delivers is Jesus. And David points to Jesus because Jesus is considered to be the ultimate king. He is the Messiah that comes from David because God promised David, you'll always have a king that will reign on your throne. Well, physically, that wasn't possible. It had to point to something else. And when you come, when you finish the Old Testament, and you turn that last page of Malachi, and that next page is blank, and you turn the next page, and it says the New Testament, and you turn the next page, and there's the book of Matthew. Matthew 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Why does it say that? He's saying he's the Messiah. He's the son of David. And he is the promise made to Abraham of a future one who would bless the world. When you come to what Paul writes in Romans 
Chapter 1, verse 3, Paul's laying out to this church he's never been to, his credentials. He says, I'm an apostle appointed by Jesus Christ, who is, by the way, the descendant of David, the Messiah. Later on, 1 Timothy 6.15, Paul says, Jesus is the king of all kings. When Jesus comes to the Jews, he says, follow me and you will enter into the kingdom of God. I mean, everything is about the importance of a king. And then you look at Israel's history. Whenever they had one guy following God, leading them, they did their best up until the story of Samuel. I mean, Moses, when they got out of Egypt, how'd they get out of Egypt? There wasn't a committee that met. Hey, it's a committee of slaves meeting. It's not how we're going to get out of Egypt. No. Moses had to drag them out. And then after that, Moses is dead. How are they getting in the promised land? God appointed Joshua. Joshua said, we're going, let's go. He got them there. And then in the midst of Judges, you read Judges, there is no way any one person within a few years can get Israel back together, defeat the enemies of God, and make them unified. Oh, except this guy named Samuel, who God has appointed. Everything points to the need for a king. And then you come to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And when I come to 1 chapter 8, 1 Samuel 8, here's what I realize. Sometimes it is hard to understand God. Because I'm like, God, I don't understand. You ever been there? You ever get to a point where you're not understanding God? I've been there. It's like, God, you know, I'm not getting this. What's going on? <laughs> and then I realize the problem isn't with God. God is holy. He's good. The problem is with us. And we're going to see that in this chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. Here's what it says. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now, the timing sometimes is hard to know the timelines of things because people disagree by a few years here and there. The word old, <laughs> one commentator said, at this time, Samuel's about 54. I'm like, that ain't old. <laughs> the Hebrew word for old there means as I understand it, past 90. That's old. So I don't know. He was old, whatever that means. And so he appointed his son's judges. Now, we'll see next week that one of the functions of, of Samuel was a judge, which means leader. And he led the people. And uh, he led all of them. But as he got older, he couldn't do all the traveling he used to do. And so then the name of the first one was Joel, the second Abisha. And they were judging in Beersheba. Now, Beersheba was in the southern part of Israel. And so it kind of makes sense. You put your sons down there to kind of help out. Here's the problem in verse 3, though. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways. In words, they weren't like him. They didn't take the journey he took after God. But they turned aside after dishonest gain, and they took bribes and perverted justice. So these guys were corrupt. They were corrupt for the cause of money. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see the sons of Eli. And they were corrupt too, but it was different. They were priests. The sons of Samuel were not functioning as priests. They were functioning as judges, civil leaders. Now, functioning as priests, the sons of Eli had a responsibility for the worship, and they perverted the worship, so they corrupted the worship of God. By the way, corrupting the worship of God is a far more serious offense than perverting justice. I know to us that may not sound right, but obviously it was to God because of the way he dealt with that. And so they were corrupt. So verse 4 says this, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. In other words, each tribe, each group had their leadership come. And they said to him, Behold, 
You have grown old. I mean, you're in your 50s. Come on. That's just stupid. 54 is old. I threw that book away. Like I said, I burned it. I gave it to Joe, actually. But, um, and your sons, look, do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint a king for us to judge. Judge us like all the nations. So here we said, they, they asked, give us a king. Now, that makes sense to some degree. That just to, 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 to give us a king. And we can understand why. Listen, I get it. Some of those guys, they're old, too. They're elders. means they're old also. And they remember what life was like before Samuel. They remember life in the judges. They remember when they worshipped the pagan gods of the Baals. They remember when the Philistines dominated the southern part. They remember when the Amalekites and the Edomites. They remember all of that when they were basically slaves. They don't want to go back to that. Samuel, brother, you ain't going to be around forever. Listen, I get that. Now, I'm going to tell you right now. As a man past 54, I don't ever want a group of people from my church to come and tell me, David, you're getting old. And you need to think about what to do when that time comes. Don't do that. Because that rebellion part of me will come outside. But that's what they did. And I get it. They didn't want to leave it in the hands of the sons. So they said, give us a king. The problem is, they looked at the nations around them. The word nation means people groups. It doesn't mean necessarily geolo- geopolitical like we think of a country. It was all the different cultures. But they wanted kings like the cultures that used to dominate them and steal from them and lead them astray. Verse 6. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel. That means we thought it was evil. And they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel didn't like this, and I get it. He probably took it personally. So Samuel did the thing that a prophet would do, and a judge would do, and a priest would do, a man of God would do. Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people. In other words, do what they tell you. That's what listen means. In regard to all they say to you, for they have not rejected you. He said, the word rejected means to put aside. He said, Samuel, they love you, brother. It's not about you. They're not rejecting you. But they have, get this, rejected me from being king over them. That's kind of a tough part right there. They did not go back to worshiping Baal. That's not what this means. But not only was God obviously the sovereign spiritual guy, but God is the total package, okay? That's probably not the right way to put it. I'm sorry, Lord. God is sovereign over all things. He was also the one who governed them. And the way God governed them was by putting the right people in place. God was their king. And at some point, God would do for them what he had done with Moses and Joshua and Samuel. When God was ready, he would put someone over them. So they had rejected him in what they did. And they rejected Samuel. It said earlier, he did not reject you, but they rejected me. But, you know, they rejected Samuel in the sense that Samuel was a prophet of God. How would God speak to the people through Samuel? So they didn't reject Samuel as a person, but they said, Samuel, you're not going to speak to us anymore for God. We got it from here. That's basically what they said. So verse 8, he goes on to say, God is like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. So he's saying, just as they have always done that, in this particular case, they're not worshiping other gods, but he's saying they are forsaking me. This is their history. Now, listen to their voice, and you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So he says, 
You're going to tell them what's going to happen. No longer is it going to be like it would have been in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, which if you want, you can go home and read later, but not right now. He's going to tell them, and what you read from verses 10 through 17, here's what you really see. You see two things that's going to happen with this king. There'll be conscription and taxation. The word conscription, what I mean by that is, he's going to draft your sons and your daughters, and he's going to take them and your slaves and your servants are all different, all different types of ways of serving the government. I was just young enough not to be a part of the draft process. Some of you are a little bit older, and you probably remember the draft, and that was a scary thing. Nobody wanted the government to come and take them and tell them you had to go to war. But that's what they would do for all parts of life. Not only that, they're going to tax you to death. They're going to take from your money, your crops, your herds, your flocks. They're going to take whatever they want. That should be enough to push them aside and say, no, no more. And then what verse 18 says this, and if that happens, if you do this route, then when you cry out on that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So when you get tired of the king, too bad. This is the path you chose. Verse 19 says this, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And here's what you see, and this is the key. But there shall be a king over us. That's what they want. Here it is, verse 20. And this gives you the understanding of the problem. That we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Here's what they're saying. Now, what we want is a king just like all the cultures around us. We want to be like them. We're still going to worship God, only God. But we want a king like the Philistines and Malachites and Edomites. We want that. And they'll, they'll judge and make all the decisions. Because we don't want to have to worry anymore about where the decision's coming from. We don't want to have to wait on God. They'll do it and they'll lead us in the battle. This way we don't have to worry about whether God's going to provide someone. It's all taken care of. We have an army. We're good to go. They wanted to be like the world around them. The problem wasn't that they wanted a leader. That made sense. Here was the problem. They weren't willing to do it the way God wanted. See, you can want the right thing, but for the wrong reason. In fact, it wasn't even wrong to want a king. Because we're told that at some point, God would provide a king, way back in Deuteronomy. Because we're told in Judges that the problem is they wouldn't have a king. But here's the thing, they weren't willing to wait for God. And this is the crazy part of it. God already had someone picked out. It was David. Now, it's always tough sometimes to kind of figure out the timing of things. It's possible David was already born. If not, he would be soon. As soon as this chapter's over, starting in chapter 9, they go out and, and, and Samuel's going to anoint Saul to be king. And Saul is a disaster. It's horrible. And shortly into the reign of Saul, before Samuel dies, he's got to go and anoint another king. So he goes and gets David, the God picked. And by the way, no one would have ever picked David. We'll see that story in, in a few weeks. No one was going to pick this guy, David, but God did. And then everybody knows that David's been anointed king. And so David kind of grows up and serves as a young man in, in, in the house of Saul. And there's this tension. Saul keeps trying to kill him. And there's all these problems. Saul eventually dies. David becomes king. But there's still a civil war. There's so many things that David deals with because the people wanted a king and wouldn't wait on God. So God gave him Saul and the mess that went with it. Verse 22. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. You can have one. 
And you'll pay the price for not waiting for me. Now, here's the amazing thing about God. God always accomplishes what he wants. So God had David picked, and God's going to get David there. In the meantime, he's going to let Israel have what they wanted and all the problems that go with it. You see, here's what happened. Israel chose the path of convenience over faith. You ever do that? I have. I've taken the easy way instead of the faith way. The amazing thing is God always gets me where he needs to get me. Unfortunately, sometimes I pay a heavy price in the process. Sometimes it's hard to understand God because we don't travel the path of faith. We keep wanting to do it our way. Which brings me now to the second thing I want to share with you. Trying to make sense of it all. Fundamentally, what did Israel do wrong? It wasn't that they worshipped foreign gods because they weren't doing that. And it wasn't that they wanted a righteous leader and were concerned that what happened to Samuel, what would go on. That made sense. But all they had to do was go, hey, Samuel, you know, because you're old, what's going to happen when you're gone? Because we don't want things to be the way they were. That would have been legit. It's not what they did. So let me show you two things that they did. First is this. Israel believed it could be like the culture around them, life would be better. If I could just be like the culture around me, man, life would be better. It's amazing how often people who have faith think if they could be like the people who don't have faith, their life would be better. What an odd thing to think. If I could be like the people rebelling against God, wouldn't my life be better? better? The answer is, well, no. No, it wouldn't. And the second problem they had was this. Israel didn't trust God. They just didn't. Oh, they worshiped God. They believed in God. I mean, we, we, I guarantee you in our four services, we're going to have people here believe in God and worshiping God, read their Bible, pray, they don't just trust God. That's the problem. They just don't trust God. They may, they may say, well, I do for some things. That's why I pray. I trust him a little bit. But, you know, there's just some things that I have found I'm a little better at than God. That was Israel. They were just a little better at knowing what they needed than God. Here's the amazing thing. What they needed, God had already provided. David. And he was going to bring David anyways. Because David was part of God's plan. And Israel wasn't going to mess up God's plan. So he was going to go to David. And then from David, it was a straight shot to Jesus. It was a long path, but it was a straight path. Because ultimately, God's getting to Jesus. And here's the amazing thing about God. When you read all the Old Testament, and you read all the garbage, and you read all the sin, and you read all the rebellion, and you're through with the Old Testament, and you turn the page, God gets to Jesus. Because everything is focused on Jesus. And when I read the Old Testament, I don't read the pages seeing Jesus everywhere. But I promise you, I know Everywhere I read in the Old Testament, it's pulling me, 
pushing me, dragging me, taking me to Jesus. And here's why. Because Jesus is the one that makes sense of it all. Should have made that a slide. I didn't because that's pretty good. (laughs) Jesus is the one that makes sense of it all. So we live this side of Jesus. And whether you're a follower of Christ or not, to look at the Old Testament, you got to look at it through Jesus. Because he came not to do away with it, but fulfill it. He fulfilled all there was. So let me share with you in our day and age, as I look at this passage, and we want to get to that part where we don't do things the way we think, but the way God wants. So let me help you with this. First of all, make a distinction between what the culture wants and what God wants. Make a distinction. It's not the same. Christianity is now, always has been, and always will be counterculture. We are always counter to the culture. The greatest uh, scholarly influence in my life, John R. W. Stott, wrote a book, and he said, Christianity is counterculture. You begin to understand that. You begin to understand our place in the world. If you look at the world around you, a world in opposition to Jesus, a world that opposes Jesus, and you say, I want to be like them, instead of saying, I want them to be like Christ, you've got a problem. You've got to make that distinction between what the world wants and what Jesus wants. Secondly, this one's hard. You've got to make a distinction between what you want and what God wants. When you're a follower of Christ, you know what's easy? It's easy to say, well, I'm a Christian. I know what God wants. He wants what I want. We're good. And I'm a pastor. Oh, man. When you're a pastor... You know, when you're sitting there in your office and no one's around to tell you otherwise, and you're thinking, man, I'm full of the Holy Spirit when you're full of something else, but you're full of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and you're, you're in your wisdom, and people trust you. It's easy to think, God, this is what I want. I'm sure this is what you want. We're good. I've learned in life that when I get to that point, if I'll just do the opposite of what I want, pretty much I'm doing what God wants at that point. I've got to learn to make that distinction. Let me tell you this also. This is what's really important. Following Jesus will eventually get you where God wants you. Eventually. Eventually. It may take a while. It may be a journey. I mean, I'm old according to some people. I can tell you it's a long journey. Sometimes today, I don't understand what I may understand tomorrow, or maybe the day after, or maybe 20 years from now. But I know this, because I follow Jesus, I'll always get exactly where God wants me. Because Jesus is the one that makes sense of it all. And so, and I began the message today making the simple statement that in life it's easy to, to kind of decide 
to follow your own way instead of trusting in God. It's easy to do that. Have you ever been there before? In fact, I bet some of you are there right now. I bet some of you are at a place in your life right now where you've just decided it's easier to do it the way you want to do it than to trust God. And maybe, just maybe, that's the reason you don't understand God and the reason your life's messed up. So let me, let me ask you this. Where in your life right now are you trusting the culture? At what point and place in your life right now are you trusting the world? And let me ask you this. At what place in your life, at what point right now are you trusting you? Because, come on, that's the easiest thing to do. At what point are you just trusting you? And is there some place in your life where maybe, just maybe, what you really need to do is trust Jesus? And in trusting Jesus, maybe, just maybe, he'll make sense of all of it. Some of you today may have the most important need of all, which is to trust your life to Christ. That's where you begin. So I invite you today to trust Jesus. Let him make sense of your life. In just a moment, I'll be here. A couple of others will be here. And if you're a lady and you kind of wish you could talk to another woman sometimes, there should be a lady here too. And so here's the thing. If you want to come talk to one of us or pray with one of us, you can. We'll help you. If you want to join our church, you can. Or maybe you just need right where you are during the time when we sing a beautiful song we're going to sing, just to say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you and not the culture and not me. Listen, I don't know what you need to do today, but when you walk out of this place, make sure that the one you trust is Jesus. So Lord, as a, on a day where we celebrate freedom, let us not forget that real freedom, real freedom is in Jesus. He's the one that frees us from those chains of sin that bind us. He frees us from the rebellion we have against you. And he gives us the freedom to know that we can live forever in your kingdom. So God, we want to come today and honor you and follow you through Jesus. Take away all, of, all the doubts that we have. Take away all the ambiguity. Help us to quit following a culture that rebels against you. Help us quit following even ourselves. God, help us follow Jesus. And help us do it in his name and through the power that comes from your spirit. Amen. And amen. Would you stand? You come. We'll be here.